So this is a second of our two-parter on homosexuality. So conveniently, the uh, cleaners have wiped clear my board that I left there. So this can be a good way, therefore, of recapping what we did last time. So our topic was homosexuality, and I noted starting with the catechism's approach to this, how the catechism defines this. Anyone rem remember what distinction I was kind of playing with with that? Yeah. Person versus identity. So both young person and not the identity they try to put upon. Okay, that's, yeah, one of the things. Distinction between the person and their inclinations. Inclinations. And in particular, the distinction between acts and inclinations. So the catechism phrases this as acts between those who experience an attraction to someone else. Whereas a lot of the tradition has just kind of focused on the acts themselves. These are contrary to nature. These therefore are immoral and not really asking the question so much why somebody would be engaging with that. So. We're looking, therefore, in this examination on homosexuality as a condition, as an inclination, not just at the acts themselves. Now, I distinguish some things about acts and inclinations. I said we can consider sex with a woman, with a doll, with a sheep with a man or with a child. And I noted that any of these four were using, referring to sexual intercourse in something of an analogous manner. There is a sexual release, uh, kind of isn't the same thing, but it's kind of generally referred to as if it was. But just because a man might have sex with these four to satisfy his urges doesn't mean he's feeling an attraction or an inclination. That that's a different thing, being inclined to those. So, inclined to a woman is heterosexual. Said there are people who have various fetishes where there are physical things that arouse them. So there are people out there for whom somehow a doll itself, you know, blow up thing, I say you know, hopefully you don't know, um, similarly people who have somehow an attraction in an animal manner or to a man or to a child. That an attraction to those things is different from just using those things as a vehicle for your pleasure. Or sometimes we read in war, men subjugating other men in physical domination in a sexual act. That wouldn't be the same as somebody with an inclination or the term orientation to that. So a distinction we're making there, inclination and the acts themselves.
Okay, what else can anyone recall that we looked at last week? Ah, oh, terminology. What do we call people in this regard? And some things I said were not helpful to use. Was what I was suggesting is the most desirable term to use. Um, so, a person with same-sex attraction. And so in saying that, we are indicating that what we have before us is primarily a person. That's the most important thing about them. There is something secondary about them that they have same-sex attraction. And what did I note were some of the labels that actually package that all the other way around? Stating the obvious. Gay people, queer, um, and I referred to you to a book, uh, Why I Don't Call Myself Gay, that if you take a label like that and put it on yourself, you're saying this is what defines everything about me. And I said to you, you know, as a priest, I've often had the kind of uncomfortableness where in the first five minutes of meeting someone, they'll say, I'm gay. And they might be striving to be chaste, striving to be Catholic, but somehow this condition has so characterized their experience that they take this label on as this is kind of everything about me. And it isn't everything about you. The thing, you are a person. And so um, I noted in the 1990s, the CDF came out with a document um, that referred to the homosexual person, which again was wanting to make the focus here. We have a person, we don't have a homosexual. We have a homosexual person. But since then, um, increasingly Catholic circles are using this phrase, a person with same-sex attraction. So terms matter, terms change how we think about people, but terms change also how people think about themselves. Okay, what were some of the uh, phrases, terms we went through last lecture? that I said people find objectionable. Objective disorder. Objective disorder. Intrinsically disordered. Right. Um, and kind of the third in this list that people... Unnatural, right. Um, and your reading for last time was from Melina and we quoted a number of passages in class with him commenting on this and in a sense what is his basic point about these terms so yes people kind of freak out and say it's horrific to describe people using these terms or to describe the condition in these terms but his basic point is Yeah, which is a really simple. 
George objects to it and why um, it's not good. Yeah, very good. Um, and and then uh, there's a need to explain, you know, saying unnatural. Uh, you know, why are we saying unnatural? Um, not just that. To explain why we're using them, the terms, um, so that there's not that immediate uh, reaction against them. You know, so unnatural being that in the natural way, there's a certain way that people interact, um, and so unnatural being different from that. I guess there was there was a distinction that was made in the last class. Okay. And we're reviewing it yeah. to make sure we're all remembering some of those things. So um, that's why we're doing this. Um, pick up on Daniel's thing. Because it's true is one of the reasons to use these terms. There's a real problem pastorally, and you do find priests doing this, where you kind of talk to people suffering from this condition, and you just don't really face the truth. So you kind of approach it as if, I know these are awkward rules that you've got to abide by. And, you know, the church says you can't do the things you want to do. But you never really explain it in a way that says why. And so these terms, objective disorder and intrinsically disordered, are kind of essential if we are to be clear about why. That there's something in the very attraction that is disordered. It's not an ordered desire. The word unnatural, so I distinguish between, I quoted the old manuals with some lists of natural and unnatural acts. Um, so there are all kinds of disorders we have that are sinful, but not every uh, inclination to a sin is unnatural. So my inclination to ice cream, my inclination to 10 donuts, this is an ordered, a natural inclination out of order, a natural inclination that has lost its proper context because of quantity. But it is natural. Whereas there are some sins, some inclinations to sin, that aren't sinful because of a disordered context, but in themselves have no context in which they would become appropriate. And they're therefore this term unnatural, contrary to nature. And so a man having sexual relations with a man is one of these categories of an action that there is no context where it can become right, and therefore it is contrary to nature. What are some non-sexual examples of an unnatural inclination? Or whatever? Just in talking with people, to be able to give some other examples could be helpful. Eating a brick. Even yeah, nobody wants, like something that people actually want to, like nobody wants to, you hear people who eat nails, or, but like most people don't want to. 
that's a really good question. And so we do have this standard allegation within theology departments that you moral theologians, all you want to do is talk about sex. Um, because a lot of the key examples do seem to boil down to it. Nobody's that excited about people who want to eat bricks. Um, I can't think of an example of an unnatural. There's, there's the, the SNL skit of the, the lady who gets really excited and she puts her arms in her, her hands in her armpits and smells her armpits. Have you seen that? <laughs> That's a little unnatural, but it's, it's an SNL skit to show the silliness of it. Yeah, um, the eating bricks thing. That would probably be close to something like that. Um, you've taken a natural act of eating, but you're somehow doing something utterly unnatural with it. And you might imagine a man who somehow gets a weird pleasure in breaking his teeth, because his mom always told him to take care of his teeth. And just to spite her, uh, But when I went to the manuals, for examples of unnatural acts, they were all sins, uh, all sexual. Um, I'll go away and look further and see if I can find another, another set of um, manuals somewhere. Um, Well, and that's kind of the example I was thinking of with biting a brick just to damage your teeth. Um, but yeah, so that someone who's taking pleasure in damaging themselves, um, that would seem to be an, an unnatural action, um, which is broader than a specific example, but anything of that category would seem to be contrary to nature. So if the first natural inclination is self-preservation, um, that would seem to be contrary to that most basic of all inclinations that we observe in our study of the natural law. So that would seem to be therefore contrary to nature, not just sinful due to a deforming context, to use St. Thomas's term. Binging and purging? Sorry? Binging and purging? I think, in the classical phrasing, that would be the deforming context. Because the eating itself isn't, is natural. You've made it sinful by the binging in the quantity. And the taking of the, well, presumably the pleasure in the binging. Okay, so this is touching, refreshing what we were looking at last time. Um, so we were looking with this. What else did we say? Um, some related issues. So cause. If we're looking in the question of homosexuality and not just of homosexual acts, the question of cause and related cure 
I suggested to you kind of summarizing from various books four possible explanations of what could be a, the cause of this as a condition, as an inclination. Those four being genetics. genetics. So the claim that there is somehow a gay gene that some people have and some people don't. I noted that the difficulty with that as an explanation, um, not only is there no definitive scientific data on that, but just we, there are lots of examples of identical twins with the same DNA. One person has the inclination, one doesn't. But that is one of the four. Another? Early childhood in, okay, so at a psychological in the, um, yeah, so um, the theories that go with that would say a healthy maturation psychologically, a boy identifies with other boys, a boy identifies with his father and as the same, I am a male, he is a male. In many psychological upbringings, there's somehow a failure to identify, maybe linked with rejection, um, a failure of affirmation of some kind. And so the boy becoming the man seeks union affirmation from not the different, the woman, but from his own sex. Um, that's one model psychologically. Um, the third? Hormones and neutral. Hormones and And as I noted, there is some scientific data backing this as an explanation. Um, I noted that there's something to do with the ratio length of these two fingers that somehow is changed depending on what balance of different hormones there is in utero. Um, the difficulty with that as an explanation is again, identical twins would, one would imagine have the same hormonal mix in the womb and yet aren't necessarily, there are cases where one has the inclination, one doesn't. So my suggestion as a fourth is somehow all three of those and maybe other random bits. Um, and the catechism, as I quoted to you, simply says its genesis is unknown. How did I kind of theologically unpack those and say kind of any one of those three isn't theologically problematic for us? So that we shouldn't say it can't be a genetic cause because our faith tells us, you know, I don't want, we shouldn't be boxing ourselves into a corner with a position that isn't scientifically required. Uh, people have other sorts of disorders, <clears throat> and there's so there's no reason why it couldn't. Right, and we have genetic conditions that, as a result of the fall, afflict us. Um, psychological conditions, of, and all kinds of examples. Um, that there's no reason why part of our fallen state can't include any one of those three or possibly other explanations. Um, 
So what do we say to someone who says, I'm just born this way? But that doesn't affect how they're supposed to live out. Like just because you're born that way doesn't mean that you don't have to follow morality. God still has a plan for them. Right. Which actually is the page of my notes we didn't get to really, which is the call to chastity that actually there is a positive call to a way of living that just because someone is born with this state or acquires this state in their psychological upbringing, chastity, a somewhat different maybe vision of fulfillment is possible for everyone. So that I'm born this way doesn't really answer the question of what you're supposed to look like as a fulfilled, chaste human being. Uh, one other point I made, I said this condition is not neutral and this links with intrinsically disordered. Um, I noted when I was in seminary it was fashionable to say well it doesn't matter if a man's homosexual or heterosexual as long as he will be chaste, as if the condition was somehow neutral. And that's somehow bypassing some significant questions here. That it's not the most important thing about someone, it's a person we've got before us, but it's not a neutral condition. Okay, let's go back to our notes then and continue through this. Any questions from last time having kind of recapped those points? Okay, so let's turn to page five of the notes. Um, and we read through these briefly, but didn't, didn't discuss them. So page five, I was distinguishing between unjust discrimination and just discrimination. Um, so at the top there, I quoted the catechism, every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. And at the bottom there, um, I said the church condemns mistreatment of persons with same-sex attraction, whether it's bullying, whether it's violence. Um, but the various church documents I footnote there do talk about a just discrimination. And I noted that the word to discriminate simply means, and I don't footnote a dictionary, but to recognize a distinction, to recognize a difference. Should we briefly, so I did read through that list of examples there. Should not be allowed to adopt children. Um, actually, let's read through. So the footnote I quote there, footnote 18. Michael, could you read that one out to us? As experience has shown, the absence of sexual complementarity in these unions creates <coughs> obstacles in the normal development of children who would be placed in the care of such persons. They would be deprived of the experience of either fatherhood or motherhood. Allowing children to be adopted by persons living in such unions would actually bring violence to these children, in the sense that their condition of dependency would be used to place them 
in an environment that is not conducive to their full human development. This is gravely immoral and an open contradiction to the principle recognized also in the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, that the best interests of the child as the weaker and more, more vulnerable party are to be paramount, to be the paramount consideration in every case. Okay, any comments there? Fostered. Two women, well, two women like AI. And she gives birth to the child. Surrogacy. Yeah, we'll look at that next semester from a different starting point. Um, there you're in a situation where once a situation has kind of started on the wrong trajectory, how on earth do you somehow try and put it right? Um, so can I shelve that question for next semester? But I think answering this question sheds pretty obvious light on why that situation shouldn't start to begin with. Yeah. I think um, kind of what's being said, but uh, oftentimes is it made explicit, is child has a right to a mother and a father and the context of growing up in that situation. I think we've touched on that before, that you need that the model when we were talking about marriage, you need the model of uh, a woman and a man who's a husband or wife and a husband. Um, so they, a child needs that, uh, have, should have a right to that. Whereas in this situation, then how do they get those models? How do they learn what it means to live in the world from that family? Yeah. I, I think it's somewhat sorry, you do it. I think it's somewhat similar to like in vitro fertilization where, where the parent, like the child has a right to be conceived naturally uh, and nobody has a right to have a child. And we'll come on to that more explicitly next semester. But yeah, so if it started in terms of the rights of the parents or supposed rights of the people to become parents. The church's starting position is the only people with rights actually are the child. Um, and the phrasing of it, the best interests of the child. Just thinking of groups like Big, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, um, were their foundings based on a need for this um, like older role model of the same sex to be in their life? Or did it come out how far after the legalization So that the need was there before but wasn't recognized and that is an example of an organization seeking to remedy it. Some. Something, yeah. Though I think one would have to think statistically it's become a much more common need. Um, now it's always been the case that there are orphans, you know, how did the Josephinum start as an orphanage? There always have been children raised without mothers and fathers. So it's not impossible for a child to end up balanced, normal, healthy, without that complementarity and influence. 
but it's more difficult. It's not on one level normal natural, that the natural order, what does a child need growing up? It needs examples, it needs role models, that a man and a woman contribute different things, a father, a mother, committed to each other for life. This is the pattern established by God that we see in, in nature, with a capital N. But this statement, it's hard to imagine a statement more designed to cause politically incorrect um, offence. So obviously as we are articulating that in whatever context we are pastorally, we need to be aware of that. But also our position doesn't make much sense without the realisation of these truths. But it's also important, um, saying that doesn't mean to say it's impossible for a child to not be raised without his own mother and father. Because throughout human history, that many examples of that. Um, so the needs of the child are first, therefore they should be adopted by those that are married couples committed to each other for life. Second example there, should be restricted from certain aspects of youth work. Um, Daniel, could you read footnote 19? Uh, to avoid exposing young people to erroneous ideas about sexuality and marriage that would deprive them of their necessary defenses and contribute to the spread of the phenomenon. So that's only one point being made about youth work. Um, but the point being made that adults in youth work are role models to the youth that they're engaging with. If they are somehow modeling a way of life that isn't natural, that's gonna influence the youth. Um, and we talk about the corruption of the youth. Um, this would be one way in a variety of forms, youth could be corrupted. Comments in that regard? Okay, next category. Should not be admitted to priestly formation. So those of you that are Columbus, which is almost all of you, uh, your bishop has written one book and it is on this topic, Seminary Formation and Homosexuality. Um, so I gave you all a copy of this. Uh, I didn't make it required reading. What he says in here is, in a sense, very mainstream. He's making the point that um, the document that came out in, what exact year was it? 2005, yeah, so I was in Rome at the time, actually out there with Earl, my friend, as he was then. Um, and I can remember us discussing, because there were rumors of this document coming out for a long time, quite what the document could say, would say. In this booklet, he's making the case pretty convincingly that actually that document in 2005 is just in continuity with many documents through the 20th century, 
saying similar things. And saying similar things about heterosexual behavior um, as well as homosexual behavior. And the thrust of the criteria, the definition of some of these conditions is rooted in behavior, behavior that is not properly ordered in these regards is the indication of something inappropriate in the candidates, is the, the kind of criteria that can be concretely pointed to, which on one level would be true with a promiscuous heterosexual man. If you can't stabilize that, make that effectively mature, um, but back to the thing about this condition not being neutral, that it's not just, well, the homosexual man and the heterosexual man both need to be chased, and if they've been chased a certain number of years, then it's the same thing. This talks about affective maturity. So, reading to my notes here, it says, if their condition is deep-seated, if a transitory condition has not been overcome for at least three years, and saying, why? Because their condition lacks affective maturity and gravely hinders them from relating correctly to men and women. One must in no way overlook the negative consequences that can derive from the ordination of persons with deep-seated homosexual tendencies. Comments in this regard? It's not clarified exactly what's meant. Um, the head of the congregation that issued this document, um, I don't know if it was weeks or months after the document came out, made a public statement at a gathering in the Vatican um, referencing the question of deep-seated to sexual activity implying that if a man can, in a certain sense, control his activity, then yes, he might have same-sex attraction, but not in a deep-seated manner. Promiscuity and this condition are pretty widely known to go hand in hand. So if someone has something of the condition but isn't promiscuous, then I think that would be one indication of it not being deep-seated. Another way of thinking of it might be if it's not kind of apparent in the external form, there's no need to be digging secretly. Um, but that if something is apparent in the external form, it's not a neutral condition. Um, it's a cause for concern. So Bishop Fernandez indicates that the phrase at least three years in effect means before somebody entering theology. So three years before diaconate ordination would mean before entering theology. Um, effective maturity. Um, 
fortunately our seminary is not characterized by a very by noticeable uh, gay subculture um, many seminaries are many clerical circles are you can see clerical circles priests where the laity are just turned off by the affective behavior of priests in certain circles where among themselves this kind of becomes normal to have girls names for each other um, to just be very effeminate this isn't effectively mature um, it's also not healthy at a pastoral level so these would be among the criteria that I think would somehow tap into the question of effective maturity and if things are kind of manifesting themselves in that sense in the external form that's a ground for concern you know the rector often says we want healthy young normal men to be priests so that our laity look at your priests and says these are normal men Okay, legal recognition uh, we'll come on to actually on another page. Any final comments on the question of just and unjust discrimination? So at the risk of stating the obvious, this is a very contentious point here in the church documents that there is such a thing as a just discrimination against someone because they have same-sex attraction that there are certain fields of work that simply wouldn't be suitable for them and for you as future pastors the youth workers you're recruiting in different roles the church itself spells out that would be a category to be making sure someone isn't uh, employed for Whereas your flower arranger, um, that might, you know, there's no reason to bar someone from that. Um, musicians, organists, um, but the church does highlight youth work as a category to be concerned for, models to others. But you might extrapolate from that models to others. Um, are there other things where even though someone might seem to be chaste, somehow what the vibe they're sending to the rest of the community, that there is such a thing as a just discrimination. Okay, over the page, what in one sense is the conclusion of this whole topic, or the ultimate end, the call to chastity, page six. Um, David, could you read that quote? So this is, Again, from the catechism at the top of the page. Homosexual persons are called to chastity, but the virtues of self-mastery, by the virtues of self-mastery that teach them inner freedom, at times by the support of disinterested friendship, by prayer and sacramental grace, they can and should gradually and resolutely approach Christian perfection. So someone with same-sex attraction is not excluded from Christian perfection. Uh, just as 
people with all kinds of different conditions are not excluded from Christian perfection. Um, and that, I think, pastorally is an important point, and there you can quote it, a line directly from the Catechism in that regard. Um, affective maturity. This is possibly... Um, the more difficult, subtle thing in this regard uh, relates to some extent to the question of a possible cure or not for those with same-sex attraction. Psychological help at some level does in many cases seem to help a loss of individuals in terms of this question of affective maturity. To be able to relate with other men as a man, to be able to relate with other women as different from him, not part of the same girly club. Um, uh, a reference to you, so this book is in your bibliography, The Battle for Normality, uh, a guide for self-therapy for homosexuality. Um, I was noticing this is uh, yet another example of a book I've given so many copies away to that this is has no notes of my own in it anymore. Um, but it's a book numerous parishioners I've given over the years have found helpful. But touching back on what I said before, it wouldn't be honest with someone to say, if you go to therapy, you will be cured. If you go to therapy, everything will become simple. Like many conditions, um, this will help manage a condition but that doesn't necessarily mean cure it. And so the statistical example I gave you with the cure question last time um, footnoted something similar to people with alcoholism in terms of the success rate, um, that there are just lots of conditions in life people in some sense have to live with and manage not to think it can somehow go away. But affective maturity, that is the goal of a chaste life, um, and in this condition too. Um, so affective maturity, my notes there, to develop inner freedom and disinterested friendship. So if as a priest you are guiding someone in this regard, um, someone, a man with same-sex attraction should seek friendships with men who do not have same-sex attraction so that what he is gaining from that is disinterested and there should therefore be a certain freedom, uh, unattachment at a bodily sexual level. Um, Whereas, if he's seeking friendships from others who have the same attraction, that's not, it's very unlikely to be a helpful situation for him. Not just in terms of the question of possible sin, but in terms of a different dynamic of affective maturity being brought in there. Comments, thoughts in that regard? So there are lots of future parishioners who, if they have this condition, will not talk to you at all. There are others who will want very direct guidance from you. And so 
you kind of need to have thought through these scenarios, ready for those moments. Confession is the moment when you know, you've got 30 seconds there in the confessional and somebody's wanting you to say the right thing. You have to have thought what the right thing is before you get into the confessional for a wide variety of circumstances. Leads on to the question, next bullet point, avoiding occasions of sin. So we all know what occasions of sin are. Yes, something that doesn't necessarily cause the sin, but is somehow an occasion. Certain places, I say persons. And I give the example of not cohabiting with a partner. So if someone comes to you in confession and confesses that you know they've had sex with another man, a man they live with, how is that not an occasion of sin? He's leaving the confessional and going back to share the same bedroom and the same bed, but saying, I've confessed the sin. That's just not a coherent position to be in, in terms of a firm purpose of amendment, which includes avoiding the occasions of sin. Now that doesn't mean in the confessional someone needs to have figured out how he's gonna have that conversation with his partner explaining that they're separating, explaining, but he doesn't have to have planned out everything, but that does at the moment of confession have to be his resolution. Um, this isn't a confession course, but, um, so places and persons. So if you're hanging out in gay bars, that is an occasion of sin. If you're hanging out in a normal bar, but you know there's a certain few people that meet there that for you is an occasion of sin, then for you it's an occasion of sin. Um, a certain individual, a certain friend that you fall into that same pattern of sin with is an occasion of sin. And to take you know, a very different example, if you have a friend that whenever you get together in the evening, you always get drunk together, that's probably an occasion of sin. And with that friend, you should do other things together and have other friends that you meet with in the evening. So the category occasions of sin, what does the call to chastity look like? It looks like knowing what your occasions of sin are for you personally and avoiding them. I know, I say, celibacy is possible, even when not chosen. So due to diverse categories of person, uh, due, many diverse categories of persons lack an opportunity for genital expression. So due to the illness of a spouse, due to their own illness, or due to sexual attractions that are disordered in other ways. So there are simply many people who do not have an opportunity in life for genital expression and yet can be happy, fulfilled, chaste. Um, people for whom at some level what we call celibacy isn't a choice, it's just somehow where they've ended up. And I think that's an important point to make to someone with same-sex attraction, trying to think what chastity looks like for them. There are lots of people in what's in an analogous sense is a similar condition and end up being very happy.
that it's kind of the Hollywood myth that everybody out there is sexually active and that's the only way to happiness. Hopefully that should be an obvious point to make in a summary because we're all so happy here. Yes. <laughs> Try and smile. <laughs> okay, lastly. Um, so I also gave you as possible reading a photocopy of the organization Courage, their handbook. Um, so there is here in Columbus a group, Courage. Um, their chaplain came and spoke here two years ago, was it? Um, He's retired. Is he? And any idea, is someone marked to replace him? Okay, um, and so for you here in Columbus, knowing of that group, knowing how to refer someone to that group um, would be an important thing to have. Uh, lastly on that page, uh, sorry, any of you know anyone with courage? Did, I don't know, did any of you t attend his talk when he came? A lot yeah. did. Was it required? Yes, yes. Okay, so therefore you did. Okay, okay. Okay. Okay, the last point on that page. Um, despite calling it a, a call to chastity, despite saying you can be fulfilled and happy, it is a trial. I say the catechism describes same-sex attraction as a trial. Uh, Tyler, can you read that bloke? a quote from the Catechism for us. The number of men and women who have deep-seated homosexual tendencies is not negligible. This inclination, which is objectively disordered, constitutes for most of them a trial. It must be accepted with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Every sign of unjust discrimination in their regards to be avoided. These persons are called to fulfill God's will in their lives, and if they are Christians, to unite to the sacrifice of the Lord's cross, the difficulties they may encounter from their condition. And so pastorally not to minimize that. The catechism says it is a trial in encouraging someone, in talking about chastity, not to pretend it won't be a trial. But everybody in life has some trial. Um, and that is an important context for us in, in speaking of this as well. Let's move on to page seven of my notes. So this is just a particular example and the next couple of pages I've just repeated some notes from our previous lecture when we looked at civil law and marriage in general. Um, so here looking at civil law, homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And I quote at the top of the page, as I quoted to you the last lecture, um, what is the basis of civil law? That the Catechism quotes St. Thomas saying, law is an ordinance of reason for the common good promulgated by the one who is in charge of the community. Um, so who can break apart those things 
for us. What does it mean to say it's an ordinance of reason? I amplified this previously. The risk of stating the obvious. An ordinance of reason, meaning... And in Thomas's understanding, when he's using reason, what does he mean? Because he means something actually broader than logical. I know he said more than logical, but... He's meaning with reference to the natural law. Yeah, a, a truth of reason is a truth of the natural law in this context. So there is something about the human person in his nature that reason can discern. Um, civil law is based on that. So any civil law has to be rooted in what is authentically human, authentically part in accord with human nature, and thus in accordance with right reason. Common good, can you amplify that point for me? Right, so not just individual persons, private goods, anything else? What's meant by the common good? That the common good does encompass the good of all individuals. And who's responsible for the common good? All of us. Everybody. In particular, though? Ultimately, the, the authority. Right, or, or the state. But yes, so... What the state looks like in any particular example of history varies. Um, there is a sense in which the Catechism says everyone is responsible for the common good, everyone who belongs to that particular community. But in particular, it is the state that has responsibility for fostering the common good, for promoting that flourishing of the common good that in itself is ordered to the flourishing of the individual, of the persons within that community. So a law has to have as its goal the promotion of the common good. If it somehow opposes, thwarts, undermines the common good of that community, it's not a valid law, according to Thomas's definition. So a marriage law has to somehow be ordered towards the common good. That's one of its criteria. And lastly, promulgated by the one who is in charge of the community. So Thomas is defining that broadly. That can be a democratic means. It can be a good dictator dictating for the common good. Um, but that if it hasn't been promulgated, it's not a law. So. In accord with the right reason, meaning therefore also in accord with human nature, for the common good, and promulgated. Okay, so I have on that page then following two sections. I say first of right reason. Um, so I say, and here I am repeating to you what we went through in another context. First, human laws determine the euro left indeterminate by natural law. So I gave you the example, natural law says theft is wrong, 
but how a particular state, country, community defines property, defines theft, decides how they will punish theft. Those are all variables that need to be made particular concrete in an individual context. That's part of the function of civil law to make the natural law specific. And I note there are numerous ways that civil laws might enshrine marriage. Uh, so some of those, how can civil law seek to promote marriage? The risk of stating the obvious. Tax cuts. Benefits for spouses with the other. Right. Um, inheritance laws. Um, I know you're too young to be thinking about that, maybe, but um, so at the end of life also, inheritance laws is another way of the state fostering, promoting, rewarding marriage. Uh, and then we can also see examples, um, not that long back, of the state promoting large families. It's hard in our culture right now to think of that. Um, after the Second World War, France in particular had a law uh, promoting um, families that had a large number of children because they'd lost so many children in the war. Society needed more children. Um, so there are lots of ways the state can say the flourishing of society, the flourishing of the common good, needs children for the future. Therefore, it needs marriage to have a suitable place for children. Okay, back to my notes here. Next bullet point. I say, but civil laws on marriage, in as much as they are true laws, are based on what the natural law teaches about marriage. A union of one man and one woman for life, ordered to fruitfulness. So all that is what's somehow in that phrase of right reason. For the common good. Um, quoting the Catechism, what I've already said, it's the role of the state to defend and promote the common good of civil society. Marriage, I say society needs children to ensure its future. Society needs a stable place for children to be raised. And thus society needs marriage and needs to promote marriage to serve that function. Yes, that all familiar from previous lectures. So the specific example of a same-sex union, um, how does that fit into that? Well, it kind of doesn't. Uh, next bullet point there, I raised the question, adoption by same-sex couples. So we already covered that, and that's the same block quote we had on the previous page. Next bullet point, I say, adoption by a single same-sex attraction um, adult. I say, in contrast, a single heterosexual woman might adopt and raise a child, but would still, still model normality and that the adult woman would be looking, in some sense, to a man and manifesting normal, in that sense, to the child being raised. So I think it is reasonable to note that somehow a single 
lesbians say wanting to adopt a child is a different category from a same-sex couple but it still somehow isn't really in the best interests of the child. Comments in that regard? Or are we just repeating ourselves here? The church still teaches that for adoption it needs to be a married man and woman, right? And that's what the those other documents, yeah, it, it kind of say all in the reverse, yeah. So a Catholic adoption agency, that should be the only couples they're taking. Uh, I noted that in England, when it became required under law for adoption agencies to accept same-sex couples, all our Catholic adoption agencies then closed. Um, and there are various spheres when, when the civil law changes, we have to pull out rather than do what is morally compromised. Yeah? Where are we? Okay, uh, so Latin term meaning justice, right ordering, um, so a, a broad range of things to do with not the word, the English word justice, so he's not using the word English word justice to try and have a, a broader sense, but that's the core of what's encapsulated in that. Okay, bottom of the page then, what does that mean? Where do we stand with respect to unjust laws? If the laws of our nation here in America do have same-sex um, marriage, where are we left? I say a civil law is only a true law in as much as it conforms to reason, i.e. to the natural moral law. Quoting um, the Catechism again, an unjust law is not a law but an act of violence which is pretty dramatic terminology, but what is the state doing to its people? It is an abuse of power, it is some act of violence. And quoting John Paul II, really what we have here is only a tragic caricature of legality. It's not true law. So it's had legal process, been through the courts, maybe it's been through Congress. Um, it's had legal process but it fails to be what true law is, namely right reason for the common good. It's not right reason, it's not in accord with human nature, and it will therefore undermine the common good. What's the one thing on that page I don't say about the basis for civil law? and same-sex marriage. Just, you know, if we were talking about this with evangelicals at some ecumenical gathering, they'd be saying the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Um, and the Bible doesn't say much about civil law in that 
you know, in terms of a specific question like this. Um, so our, our evangelical friends are right on so many things, but we're rooting our position in something that actually a good atheist should be able to see what we're articulating here as well, even without having the Bible. Okay, the next couple pages I'm just re-quoting to you in the same bundle of notes what we've been through before, um, but let's reiterate a couple of these points briefly. So top three lines on the top of page eight, here we have de facto unions being treated as comparable to marriage. So what would a de facto union of a same-sex couple be? Anyone? And in this context, somehow envisaging the law doesn't say they are married and they don't go through a same-sex marriage process, but they've been living together, they've been partners or whatever for a period of time. One of the proposals in different places is therefore the law should treat them as if they were married because they've kind of been living as married for all these years and one of them dies and the other wants to have all the inheritance of the property or something similar. Um, the first three lines, David, could you read to us? Public recognition of de facto unions and asymmetrical juridical framework is established. Whereas society would take on obligations towards the partners in a de facto union, there they in turn would not take on the essential obligations to society that are proper to marriage. So anyone, what's that saying? What are the obligations to society in this context, to use that phrase, that a married couple does? Raise children. Is the key thing, yeah. Um, and so the proposal that society should give tax breaks, inheritance rights and whatever else to a de facto union couple, society is benefiting them, but they're not benefiting society the same way. That a committed man, woman, husband, wife, marriage, ordered to children, serves society. And that's why society should give support and tax breaks and whatever to them. If society gives those tax breaks to everybody, in effect it gives tax breaks to nobody. Um, so that's just kind of reiterating a point we made about civil law in general about marriage in the context of same-sex marriage. And then page nine, again, I've given you this block quote before, but um, because one of the contexts is not having same-sex marriage, but civil partnerships of homosexual unions. So this is now somewhat dated in that here in America you do have same-sex marriage, but is worth remembering. So skipping down the paragraphs to the paragraph that starts because married couples, can you all find that point? And Christopher, could you read that 
little three-line paragraph, and Michael, could you read the one that starts nor is after it? Because married couples ensure the succession of generations and are therefore eminently within the public interest, civil law grants them institutional recognition. Homosexual unions, on the other hand, do not need specific attention from the legal standpoint since they do not exercise this function for the common good. Nor is the argument valid according to which legal recognition of homosexual unions is necessary to avoid situations in which cohabiting homosexual persons, simply because they live together, might be deprived of real recognition of their rights as persons and citizens. In reality, they can always make use of the provisions of law, like all citizens, from the, <coughs> from the standpoint of their private autonomy to protect their rights in matters of common interest. It would be greatly unjust to sacrifice the common good and just laws on the family in order to protect personal goods that can and must be guaranteed in ways that do not harm the body of society. And again, at the risk of stating the obvious, so therefore, two men living together that say, well, if we were married, we'd have inheritance rights if one of us dies. What's this saying is the framework that already exists in law by which they could do something comparable. Or set up a trust where it's owned jointly. Um, that there, there are numerous ways that the law already makes possible. So if what's being claimed is um, rights of possession, there are other ways that can be done without giving them the status of marriage and the label of marriage. So we can burn down the uh, office of de facto unions? Is there an office of de facto unions? No. Okay. In different forms, I think de facto unions will continue to be a thing. And with more and more situations where couples are just living together rather than seeking marriage, we're going to have an increasing push that, well, Let's just give all couples the same rights, and that just undermines marriage. And so that's not just a same-sex union question, but it's a thing we need to have on our legislative agenda and minds as pastors, and what we're saying to, to parishioners and groups. Marriage deserves protection because marriage benefits society. Family deserves protection because family benefits society. And to call everything a family just because there's a child there isn't doing justice to children. Okay, um, the back page, I had some pastoral scenarios to discuss. All these, as I footnote, are shamelessly cut and pasted from Father Bissot's lecture notes. Um, I think we've talked through a number of scenarios already, so I'm content to leave those uncovered. Um, so summarizing what we've done today in last lecture, we've been talking about homosexuality, not just about homosexual acts, therefore more broadly, not just thinking individual sexual acts, are they right, are they wrong, but a person with an inclination to such acts. 
what's that situation? Terminology, noting that uh, the preferred term in Catholic circles these days is a person with same-sex attraction. Noting that the classical terms of objective disorder, intrinsically disordered and unnatural, even though those are politically incorrect in many circles, if we fail to use those terms, we fail to have a package that explains to someone why they have to be chaste and why that chastity is rooted in authentically what they are as a human person, not just obeying a random set of rules that the church gives them.